1: not with books. They stick around. They look beautiful. I like how they kind of slowly open up and become even more beautiful as they sit on your, you know, wherever absolutely you
0: because they're that fresh. So go to books.com and use promo code hysteria for 25% off. That's dot S.com promo code hysteria books, promo code hysteria.
1: Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan, and I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, it's the last episode before the election. It is. Oh, my God. Well, here's here's my question for you this week. Kim Kardashian wanted to feel normal. So she flew a bunch a bunch of her friends to a private island to celebrate her 40th birthday where they ate birthday cake and danced without masks on. And I'm assuming that later on they hunted poor people because that seemed like a kind of island where the most dangerous game is plentiful. Um, Alyssa, what's the least normal thing you've done to feel normal in the run up to Election Day?
0: The least normal thing I've done to feel normal. Okay, truly, I've started putting blush on. I haven't worn makeup in 100 years, and I'm like, you know what? Maybe you'll look alive if your cheeks are a little pink. <laughs> so anyway, what do we think? I put it on for you guys. It's a little glow. You, you are glowing. I'm glowing. Positively. Wait, can, positively I, positive. can I say the biggest weird thing about the Kim Kardashian, aside from its utter tone deafness? Her list of people she brought, which looks to have needed a 747 to get to whatever fucking island she went to, it was, like, not an exciting list of people. Like, did she have to crowd build for her birthday? Like, why was Scott Disick there? (laughs)
1: I don't know. It sort of reminds me of a rumor I heard about, uh, Laura Trump's baby shower, um, how she had to invite all the, she had to invite all the like Trump hangers on. So her like real friends were there. And then also diamond and silk (laughs) were at her baby shower. It just was one of those strange things, but, um, yeah, I don't know. So many mysteries, so many questions about that Island, but I just hope that Kim Kardashian feels at least a little bad about herself today because that sucked. Hope she feels a lot bad about herself. She should
0: feel bad. Some stupid bullshit right there. She's got like as many followers as Donald Trump and they use their platforms equally bad.
1: Yeah. Eat the rich. Um, Yeah. Eat the rich. Eat the rich as you said. Um, And before we get to the show, I want to wish a uh, happy one year anniversary to what a day. Which is a show that both you and I have guest hosted, and it is just a lovely daily podcast to have in your rotation. It is lovely
0: and so necessary and the best way to get your little daily capsule of news. Totally.
1: It's like being woken up by two very nice people who are telling you the bad news gently. It's true. All right, let's get to the show. This week, we're joined by Professor Melissa Murray, Michigan State Representative Mari Manugian, and Michaela Watkins to tackle the following questions. Can the Supreme Court be unfucked? Is there an art to the clapback? How is the story of a fake Melania Trump like the fifth weirdest thing to come out of the Trump White House this week? All this and more right now. Okay, big news week. The worst. Very big news week. It's, it's a big news week, but also I'm in a state of just like utter dread. Mm-hmm. Dread and panic just on a knife's edge of being uh at any given moment like just spiraling into uh anxiety um so on Tuesday night my husband and I were watching uh you're what I'm series. sorry you're what my my okay, husband cool. my husband cool. I'm, I'm a I'm a wife now You've I've been wife. um <laughs> my husband and I were watching the World Series together and when we first turned the game on I was like I, I'm like only sort of a Dodgers fan. I live close to the stadium, and I like when the local team wins, but I don't, like, follow them, you know? As soon as he put the game on, I was, like, about to lose my shit. And then, you know, eventually I kind of like, oh, you know, this is fun. It's a sport. It doesn't really matter. But honestly, the election anxiety is is fucking me up, a little. I get it.
0: I get it. The ability to enjoy anything feels both wrong and trite. Mm-hmm. We just got to, like, power through for the next couple of days. Because it's like, I, I guess, too, it's like by next week, we don't even know what we're going to know.
1: Yeah. I've been thinking about that, Alyssa. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe this will be a little bit under the hood for the listeners. But we have to record a show mm-hmm. the day after the election. Now I have the luxury of being on the West Coast, so you know, 3 a.m. your time is is merely midnight my time. But do you have some sort of like sleep management plan? Do you have a do you have like a sort of how are you going to get through those couple days? So I think that Monday night I have a bunch of you know
0: great GOTVE type things to do on Zoom, and I'll go to bed at a normal time, and then Mm -hmm. Tuesday is kind of like. I feel like requires a mid-afternoon siesta. Mm-hmm. So that then yes, after you voted. Because yeah, we can't. I voted by mail, so I'm good, but everybody else should take a siesta. Mm-hmm. And then it's like you gotta think about. I mean, I don't really think I should have much wine, because wine's gonna make me sleepy. I think weed would make me sleepy, but nothing is gonna make me tense. And so I think I'm going to take a mid-afternoon nap, make a meal, and then I'm going to take some of that hydrant stuff we get, the caffeine juiced up one. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, right about like eight, nine o'clock, and then I'm just going to see where the good Lord takes me.
1: Okay. Okay. You know, I uh, I think that the siesta idea is really good. Um, I think that because the night will probably go late, I'm probably... <laughs> this is going to sound so like dumb, but... Um, there's this type of non-drowsy allergy pill uh-huh. that if I take it, it it keeps, I mean, it's non-drowsy. I can't sleep. It's not like suit, it's not like Sudafed. It's not like, you know, Donald Trump's legal UK speed. But it does have a little bit of a like, it kind of perks me up a little bit. So I think if I take it after my siesta, my brain will like have about a day's worth of energy, like eight hours it. worth of energy. And then I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'm gonna do. So Look, the the news has been depressing this week. The Amy Coney Barrett stuff is crazy. The Supreme Court stuff is crazy. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh is an idiot. Um, Luckily, we have somebody who's joining us later who can kind of walk us Mm -hmm. through all of that stuff. So we're definitely going to be talking about the Supreme Court, but we're doing it with an expert. Um, Let's just talk about dumb shit today. Perfect.
0: Perfect. You're
1: talking my love language. Let's just talk about dumb shit today because who knows when the the shit will be dumb again. Guess what? There's a fake Melania. You know, the fakest. Multiple, I think. There might be many Melanias. Okay. So this past weekend, a photo uh, was circulating of quote unquote Melania waving out of Marine One Mm -hmm. behind Donald Trump. Clearly not Melania. Not Not even Close. Not her forehead, not her cheekbones, maybe similar spray tan pattern. And hair. Or, I and, think and, hair. And wig. Yeah. And wig. Yeah. Clearly not Melania. Um and it was just like brazen.
0: It was just brazen. Mm-hmm. It was why I mean Can you just imagine? Let me just let me help you imagine. The conversation with Secret Service <laughs> explaining how they're gonna stay behind with real Melania. But fake Melania, like, there has to be, like, a fairly broad meeting – about the impersonator going on Marine One and Air Force One with the sitting president of the United fucking States. Like, please understand the text change by and between Secret Service agents and other high-ranking government officials. Like, damn, this shit's getting whack.
1: Like, it's crazy. And that raises an important question because if it's not the real Melania, if it's fake Melania, she doesn't need real Secret Service. Maybe the Secret Service were also impersonators. It's- They were just not actual. It was just people in suits.
0: I mean, it's such an abomination, but also such a tribute to the fucked up world we live in that it was like barely a footnote of a story. Can you please imagine for me for one minute if Michelle Obama... Michelle Obama had gotten a fake floatist to go out and campaign with Barack Obama.
1: It's insane. Oh, my God. Well, first of all, it'd be really hard to find a double for Michelle Obama because she's one of the most beautiful people I've ever seen up close. Totally, and
0: And, uh, also has the good sense to not wear fucking sunglasses in the presence of, like, real people. Take your sunglasses off. It's rude. Yeah,
1: it's it's very rude. Like, come on, you're not at a— you're not at the Grove shopping at Louis Vuitton, <laughs> and trying to assert your like social superiority over the salespeople who hate you. You're the first lady. Um, yeah, Michelle would never. She would never. No one would ever. So, but the question it's, is, it's does she
0: not travel because she hates him, or is she still sick? Like that's the thing.
1: I don't know. Is she still sick? Is she? Was she getting, ever sick? Uh, was she ever sick? Is she getting? I mean, look, I hate that we're living in a reality where we have to question when people say they're sick, whether or not they're actually sick. But these people lie so much that it's like nothing they say can be taken at face value. They're even like lying about who they are. Oh, it's just so it's bad, just crazy to me so bad. but we need to make sure people
0: understood and looked back in time at that story because it's crazy,
1: yeah. it is crazy. <laughs> Fake Melania we love you in this, the the way that we know how to love in this very fucked up world. Um, something a little less, well, no, this is also stupid, but it's a stupid thing that gets to a, a root of a serious issue. So um, Peggy Noonan, Peggy Noonan, former Ronald Reagan speechwriter, and uh, sort of, I just kind of picture her as, you know, like how Maureen Dowd sort of seems like a, like a wine aunt mm-hmm. who tries to hang out with all the 22-year-olds at, like, the family <laughs> holiday party. And everyone's like, oh, get the wine aunt out of here. We don't want to talk about, like, Roman mythology as it pertains to our current political climate. Like, get out of here, wine aunt. I think Peggy Noonan is sort of like the the hard candy aunt. She's like the the bad Halloween house, but a person? What
0: kind of candy does she give out at Halloween? If
1: she doesn't give out candy. What is she? She turns the lights out and she doesn't <gasps> decorate. Do
0: you know how many She's pumpkins I have for carving outside right now?
1: <laughs> I mean, of course, because you're the anti Noonan. You're the anti-Peggy Noonan. I am the anti Peggy Noonan, the opposite of her. If you ever were to meet, you would have to fight. It'd be like Harry Potter and Voldemort. Peggy Noonan wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, that was published last Friday. That was a real steaming pile of shit. Um, she took aim at Kamala Harris. I almost called her vice president Kamala Harris. Oh, mm. I like that. Knock wood soon enough. My friend, knock wood. Uh, she took aim at Kamala Harris, um, because Kamala Harris is joyful. I'm going to read a, uh, I'm going to read an excerpt cause it is, it is really bad. And I'm sorry to subject all of you to this, but you have to hear it to understand the extent of its badness. For her part, vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris—should I do it in a silly voice? Do it in a silly voice. For her part, vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris is, when on the trail, giddy. She's dancing with drumlines and beginning rallies with What's Up, Florida. She's throwing her head back and laughing a loud laugh, especially when nobody said anything funny. She's a younger candidate going for the younger vote, and she's going for a happy warrior vibe. But she's coming across as insubstantial, frivolous. When she started to dance in the rain on stage in Jacksonville, Florida, to Mary J. Blige's work that, it was embarrassing. First of all, Peggy Noonan, how fucking dare you? How dare you? How dare you? Like, first of all, Kamala Harris showing joy is. I mean, we've talked about this on the show when we had Ayanna Presley on here. Ayana Presley spelled out really well how joy is an act of resistance. Mm-hmm. And I think that seeing Kamala Harris being joyful, dancing is I think it's awesome. I don't think there's anything frivolous about a woman who is, like, smart and successful and capable of having fun.
0: No, no. Imagine if the world were just full of unfun people. I mean, well, it would be a many, many, many Peggy Noonan's, but, like, <laughs> what the f- – like, Peggy, get a grip, girl. It would be, like, Noonan'sville. I think
1: um, – Peggy Peggy needs mushrooms. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. She needs to get, open her mind get, to joy. Get Peggy out into the desert with a an experienced doer of – psilocybin and, uh, you know, have her go on a journey. Because right now, Peggy Noonan sucks. Like, she's sucks. sucked for a a very long time. She's, she's a just out-of-touch, beltway, pearls-wearing, wainscoting Like, that's, you know, that that awful kind of D.C. thing. Like, everything that normal people don't like about D.C., that's Peggy Noonan. I think Peggy Noonan could have a great second career as the mayor of the town in Footloose that doesn't allow dancing. <laughs> I wrote more, Alyssa. Wait, uh, wait, them. hold
0: on. I have I have a Peggy Noonan.
1: Okay, tell me.
0: If it were Christmas and Peggy Noonan went to Whoville, Cindy Lou Who would pick the Grinch before his heart grew <laughs> and not Peggy Noonan. Oh.
1: Speaking of Christmas, okay, that's a good one. Peggy Noonan is like the Ebenezer Scrooge of uh, American politics, except instead of being crabby about Christmas, she's just crabby every day of the year. Peggy Noonan is not allowed in roller rinks. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
1: When Peggy Noonan read the book Matilda, she rooted for Miss Trunchbull. If Peggy Noonan (laughs) were on Little House in the Prairie, she would pay Doc Baker not in chickens, but in coal. Ooh, Mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty harsh. Peggy Noonan is a commemorative Ronald Reagan plate that is slowly making everybody in the house sick because it is decorated with lead paint. That's Peggy. You win the internet with that
0: one. I can't compete. What a
1: dizzy bitch! What a what a dizzy dizzy bitch! What a
0: like Peggy. find also Peggy. Talk about the pinnacle of white fragility and privilege. That this is what gets her up in arms, and she makes her put pen to paper. Kamala dancing in the
1: rain. Do you think she took such umbrage when Gene Kelly danced in the rain? Probably not. That's no. That's like an the sexuality of an entire generation of American women. How is she even still a thing? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I feel like that about a lot of conservative columnists in like major American newspapers. Like, why is Brett Stevens? Why Ugh. is Peggy Noonan? Ugh. There's, be- I mean, look, I'm not a conservative, but. I know that there are good conservative writers who would make arguments that I would disagree with, but do it in a way that wasn't stupid and totally out of touch.
0: Yeah, you know what? Give me some Essie Cup.
1: Yes, but Essie Cup is is fully transitioning to being hashtag one of. She's she's she'll she's always one she'll
0: always maybe think different, but I listen to her fo- fully rationed arguments.
1: Yes. Yes, exactly. And she's and she's a better writer than any of those idiots too. Um okay, yeah, Peggy Noonan, you you fucked up and that was stupid. Um I want to throw out a quick toast cuz I think you have a toast mm. too. I'm going go to go second cuz your toast. Okay. I'm excited about your toast. First toast, okay. I want to toast the the country of Chile. The country of Chile. Um, This past weekend, 78% of Chileans voted to replace their current charter, which was written by General Augusto Pinochet, who was the fascist from the, uh, who ruled from 1973 to 1990. Um, Starting in April, according to the new Chilean rules, uh, half of the constitutional assembly must be women. And the, uh, and they will be the ones that are drafting the Constitution, mm-hmm. which will be ready in early 2022. And then when they're done drafting the Constitution, the whole country gets to vote to approve it. I think that is so exciting. It's very exciting. That they're breaking, breaking away from that, that fascist um, past and moving forward in a way that's like really, really progressive. And I will say um, I had the pleasure of visiting Chile uh, a couple years ago, I went in January. It was a magical country of just really, really nice people. But I cannot understand their Spanish because they drop letters at the end of it. But it's 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 great. Toast to Chile! And
0: do you know that the fjords of Chile produce? Some of the best salmon in the world. Interesting. I didn't know that. You want to know how I know that? How do you know that? I sat next to the tourism minister of Chile once (laughs) on a state visit. Oh, that's amazing. And you know I do my deep dive, so I taught myself that and brought it up in conversation. It was a hit.
1: (laughs) Oh, nice. Nice. Good wine in Chile also. Mm -hmm. Good Good wine. And Santiago is a is a very nice city. Um, so a toast to Chile. Congratulations on your forthcoming new constitution and uh, gender parity. I, I think that's awesome. Um, Alyssa, got a toast? Erin, have you heard about bringing joy to the polls? I have, but I'm going to pretend I haven't because I want to hear you talk okay,
0: about it. Okay, great. So there is a nonpartisan group called Election Defenders, which is making sure that in polling places across America – where lines are way too long, but people are tenacious D in their core and sitting and waiting, they are bringing joy to the polls. They are bringing music. They are bringing musical... They are bringing, like, performers. They are making sure that people who stick it out online at the polls, in line, online, it's a regional difference,
2: um,
0: (laughs) are, like, are... They are making voting as joyful as possible because voting should be joyful. And this is, like revolutionary it feels because people are like oh my god hey what a crazy idea but they are uh yeah and it's very exciting i've been helping them uh, as much as i can and i love that it's nonpartisan and you should check them out on twitter and instagram at joy to the polls lots of fun people have made playlists uh that are being played will be played at polling places and uh it's nice to see a bipartisan effort to combat voting suppression
1: that's awesome. Mm-hmm. That is. That's a great note to end the news segment on, um, because you know you got to grab joy where you find it. Exactly, Peggy Noonan. Unless you're Peggy Noonan, <laughs> unless you're Peggy Noonan and you break out in hives around joy, <laughs> you have a joy allergy. Go to a restaurant and you tell them, "No, I'm not allergic to any foods, but you must not be joyful for I'll you know get what? very sick."
0: Disco doesn't
1: let Peggy Noonan listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's chat with Professor Melissa Murray on what's going on in the Supreme Court. Okay, we're back. Um between Amy Coney Barrett swearing in as a Supreme Court Justice and our current Supreme Court Justices really going to town on making sure fewer votes get counted, this week's news has been heavy on Supreme Court. I think the legal term is fuckery. It's <laughs> fuckery. Uh, we've brought in our guest today to help us make sense of it all. Melissa Murray is a professor of law at New York University School of Law and is the co-director of the Burnbaum Women's Leadership Network. She co-hosts a podcast called Strict Scrutiny, which is about the Supreme Court, which I recommend if you want to hear three super smart women who really know their stuff talking about the court. Welcome, Professor Murray. Thanks for having me, ladies. Um, so we have a lot to talk about. And none of none of it feels great. <laughs> um, on Friday, the Supreme Court will decide whether to take up a case that could directly challenge the precedent of Roe. Uh, the case takes up the legal back and forth over the 15-week abortion ban in Mississippi that has provisions for fetal abnormalities, but not rape or incest. So we already know how Barrett feels about abortion. Uh, Melissa, what would the impact of the court taking up the case B. Could this be the death knell for Roe? And how worried should people be about continued access to things like IVF and birth control?
3: So I I think the first thing I want to make clear is that Even if Roe isn't overruled, that doesn't mean we're out of the woods in terms of access to reproductive health care. We live in a world right now where, for many women, Roe is essentially a nullity. Like there are many women living throughout the South and various parts of the country, the upper Midwest, where abortion restrictions make it impossible to access abortion because they can't find childcare in order to go and wait 24 hours in order to have this procedure, or they don't have the money to pay for the procedure. So again, for many women in the United States, Roe versus Wade is already done and over. So whether or not this court chooses to simply chip away at continued access to Roe or simply overrule it, They've already done that for a lot of women in this country. And I don't know what... The newly constituted court will do vis-a-vis Roe. I, I think it is likely that there are certainly four votes on the court to take up this challenge to the Mississippi restriction. Um I don't know if there will be five votes. Um, you know, maybe there will be someone who is institutionally minded uh who would join the Chief Justice um, with the liberals again, but I think that's more unlikely. Uh I think they recognize that overruling Roe is sort of napalm for the court at this point in terms of legitimacy um many americans may differ as to when abortion should be restricted but there is i think 70 percent of the country who believes that a woman has the right to make this choice right so getting rid of the choice entirely i think is something that the court would think very seriously about um And more than that, I don't think we've ever had a situation where a right has been conferred and then retracted, and retracted 50 years later after repeatedly being affirmed. Um, So I think there are a lot of different things to think about in terms of whether Roe hangs in the balance. Um, You know, whether it is cleanly overruled or simply chipped away at some more, I think the outcome is the same for women. I I think it'll be very difficult to get access to reproductive health care unless you are very wealthy, unless you live in one of these states where the laws are more amenable to it. And I I think that's something we all should think about. Um, Instead of sort of holding Roe up as this kind of sine qua non of what reproductive freedom means, we should recognize that for many women in this country, reproductive freedom doesn't really exist. In terms of what else might happen and you know with regard to other kinds of reproductive health care, whether it's IVF or surrogacy, you know I think If you are one of these hardliners who believes that not only is there no right to an abortion, but that any kind of reproductive health care is anathema or tantamount to an abortion because it requires the destruction of embryos or whatnot, as IVF does, for example, I think, you know, these other procedures are not safe. Um, we've seen increasingly over the course of the last couple of years, um, even contraception, which I think many people believe is safe and sacrosanct. Um, you know, we saw in Hobby Lobby that various forms of contraception were conflated with what the court called aborto faciades. Um, You know, they, they are abortion inducing. I, I think That is somewhat overstated um, in terms of what these kinds of contraceptives do. But I I think you see where the trend is going. Um, If abortion is bad, then anything that um, limits or curtails reproduction in some way, I think, is also equally bad under that particular logic. And and if that is the logic to which you subscribe, then you are going to have a problem with these other forms of reproductive health care, even if these are the only conduits to family formation that some Americans have. Hmm.
0: Professor, as President Trump was hosting a brazenly political and overproduced swearing-in for new and illegitimate Justice Amy Coney Barrett, new kid on the bench Brett Kavanaugh was writing a truly confusing opinion about counting absentee ballots in Wisconsin. Can you explain to listeners what happened and why it's so concerning? So this was a really interesting
3: concurrence. So the Wisconsin case, I think, elaborated what was unsaid in the Pennsylvania case that was decided last week. So in the Pennsylvania case, the court split evenly four to four and let stand a Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling that would have allowed absentee ballots to be counted up to three days after election day. There were no opinions in that particular case. We really didn't understand how, what the logic was of anyone's decision. Um, we just knew that it was an even 4-4 four, four split. In the Wisconsin case though, many of the justices wrote. So Justice Kagan wrote, Justice Kavanaugh wrote, Justice Ro- Chief Justice Roberts wrote as well. And we got a little bit more color around it and filled in some of the blanks from you know, where they are on these election-related issues. And Justice Kavanaugh's conf- uh, concurrence, I think, was perhaps the most interesting because it surfaced an argument that we last saw in 2000 in Bush versus Gore, where a minority of the court, I think only three justices, um, I believe it was Chief Justice Rehnquist, Justice Scalia, and Justice Thomas signed on to this idea that um, when state courts so badly misinterpret state law, They actually are engaging in a form of lawmaking, and in so doing, they have usurped the prerogatives of the state legislatures, and only state legislatures can make law regarding elections. So when state courts, whether it's the high court or some lower state court, um, makes a ruling that just totally fumbles the ball with regard to state law. Um, They have badly usurped upon the prerogatives of the legislature and the federal courts are obliged to step in to correct it because otherwise... It has always been the case that because states make their own election law, state courts are the best interpreters of election law. And that was something we saw in Bush v. Gore. This was an argument that was made by the Pennsylvania Republicans um, in in that case. And in Wisconsin, we saw it surfaced again in Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence. Um, Basically, the argument here is that when a state court messes up, they have— again, intruded upon what the state legislatures do. And in this particular situation, um, he couldn't really get anyone else on the court to sign on to it. But I think you're beginning to see that an idea that was really kind of off the wall in Bush v. Gore is slowly becoming more on the wall. And, you know, obviously we don't know what other members of the court might think of it. We know that no one joined this particular concurrence, but we definitely don't know what the newest Justice Amy Coney Barrett thinks about it. um, nor do we know whether it would be persuasive in a more decisive and consequential election dispute. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts's opinion was also really interesting, I think, in the Wisconsin case. Um, he noted that there was a distinction between the Pennsylvania decision in which he had sided with the liberals and the Wisconsin decision in which he sided with the conservative block of the court. Uh, and he said that basically what had happened in Pennsylvania was that those were state courts deciding on state laws, but in the Wisconsin case, it was a federal district court that was stepping in. And that made it an issue of federal law, which made it um, more susceptible and appropriate. For the Supreme Court to intervene, so some really weird line drawing. I thought there was a really terrific writing from Justice Kagan that really responded to a lot of the arguments that um, Justice Kavanaugh was making. And again, um, you know, she's really sort of holding it down there with the liberal wing, but. They are only three, and this will be a situation where I think we're going to see more of these election-related skirmishes as we come up to November 3rd and even beyond November 3rd. And so I think the real question is, is something of real consequence in terms of the outcome of this election, is that going to go to the Supreme court? Um, obviously the easiest way to avoid that is to have an obvious and, and clear victory uh, for either side. Um, but if there's any kind of dispute, I think we're already seeing how some aspects of this will shape up in the court.
1: Oh man. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm like so anxious about the forthcoming election for the reasons that you spelled out. And it just, Oh, it's going to be a mess. Um, so Melissa, By November 3rd, I mean, Amy Coney Barrett's already on the court. She's been sworn in. Anything election-related, henceforth, she is going to be involved with. Um, So can you help our listeners understand who she is as a jurist? We keep hearing words like textualist and originalist. Can you kind of spell out what those terms mean and uh, which of our rights are most in danger because of these kind of Scalia-ified judicial principles?
3: Now, that's a terrific question, and... Typically, I think the confirmation process is the vehicle through which the American public gets to know a prospective justice. And I don't know that we really got that opportunity in this particular confirmation process. Um, One, it was incredibly rushed. Um, Two, she was not incredibly forthcoming. Um, You know, we can, I think, make or draw conclusions from her writings as a law professor. But, you know, to her credit, and I think she's right to say this, what you do as an academic or as a lawyer working on behalf of a particular client may be entirely different from your view as a judge. The roles are incredibly different. And, you know, I don't want to say that just because she wrote X as a law professor that that means that she would do X as or Y as a judge. Um, But really, that's all we have to draw upon because, so little was revealed during the confirmation process. And I think what we know of her, if you sort of cobble together the details from both her written record as a law professor and the limited record we have from her time as a judge on the Seventh Circuit, I think it's clear. She is very much a conservative sort of born and bred in the conservative legal movement. She says that she is a justice or a jurist in the mold of her mentor, Justice Antonin Scalia. I actually don't know that that is true. I I think in terms of her views of stare decisis, um, she has said that if a decision is wrong, conflicts with the Constitution in a particular way, then it is the obligation of the court to overrule it. And I think Justice Scalia was much more in the middle on the question of what to do about past cases that earlier courts had affirmed or had decided, but that no longer sat well with the currently constituted court. Um, She definitely thinks that those are things that the court has an obligation to correct. And in that respect... She is more like the justice who swore her in at the White House ceremony on Monday night, Clarence Thomas, who has said very clearly and emphatically that it is the obligation of federal courts to overrule past precedents that are demonstrably erroneous. Um, what does it mean to be demonstrably erroneous? Well, Justice Thomas has said any decision that is not rooted or tethered in constitutional text is demonstrably Erroneous. And Justice Barrett hasn't come close to saying anything like that, but she has been very clear that she is an originalist in terms of her views of constitutional interpretation. That means she believes the Constitution and its public meaning in 1787, when it was ratified, is the meaning that should control. Um, During her confirmation hearings, she said nothing to elaborate that, and no one really asked her about the other sort of moments of constitutional meaning making that have happened in history, including after the Civil War, where we had the ratification of the Reconstruction Amendments, which, you know, Perhaps, as some scholars suggest, really renegotiated the terms of the original Constitution to allow for a broader array of individual rights and a different relationship between the federal government and the states. No discussion of that in her confirmation at all. So all we're really left with is, you know, the Constitution It's 1787 is the Constitution that she would interpret and would basically execute um, no discussion of the fact that in 1787, she wouldn't be understood as a full citizen um, in the same way as, say, a Justice Scalia might have been under the Constitution. Um, so, you know, that's what we got in terms of her views of how the Constitution should be interpreted. In terms of her approach to statutory interpretation, which is also a big part of the court's docket, she is very clear that she was a textualist, which is to say that she believes that statutes should be interpreted according to their actual written text, the plain meaning of their written text. And this is, I think, sort of a species of originalism, this idea that the text itself tells you everything that you need to know and you don't need to extrapolate or inject your own views of it. Um, the problem, though, with both originalism and textualism, I think it's really more of an, a problem for originalism, is that constitutional provisions, statutory provision, statutory language or constitutional language can be vague or ambiguous or incomplete, and you know the question is, how do you fill in those gaps? Um, she would say, I think, as a textualist, where it comes to a statute, you wait for Congress to fill in that gap. Congress has to either repeal the existing statute and write a new one. That is harder, I think, to abide in terms of how you think about constitutional interpretation. Um, Chief Justice John Marshall, back in the 1800s, you know made it very clear. The Constitution, as it was written, was not intended to be exhaustive. It was not a code. No one could understand it if it was just fully fleshed out. And so we have to interpret it. Judges have to interpret it. And Marshall said it was emphatically the province and duty of the judicial branch to say what the law is. And so there is a role for judges to play. Um, She never really elaborated on what that role would be. And in that sense, she sort of hewed to that famous canard that um, Chief Justice Roberts announced at his 2005 confirmation that the role of the judge is really that of an umpire to call Mm -hmm. balls and strikes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, of course, someone has to set the strike zone and the person who sets the strike zone is arguably the judge.
0: Uh, Melissa, there have been there's been a lot of talk in the news about what cases, if any, Amy Coney Barrett should recuse herself from as she's been appointed by a president up for re-election one week before said election. What is the precedent for recusals? Are there any examples of similar moments in SCOTUS history where justices did or did not recuse? So
3: this is a tougher question, I think. Um, There are judicial ethics rules that... Confine and constrain the judges of the lower federal courts, but they don't apply to Supreme Court justices. Um, in recent memory, I can think of one case in which, a, or two actually, in which a justice recused. So Elena Kagan recused herself from the affirmative action cases, the Texas affirmative action cases, because as Solicitor General, she had been intimately involved in litigating those cases, and that seemed obvious. Likewise, in 1996, in United States versus Virginia, Clarence Thomas recused himself because his son, Jamal, was a student at the Virginia Military Institute, and, and that seemed obviously appropriate. Um, but there have been other calls for recusal that have really just Gone unheeded. So there are perennially calls for Justice Thomas to recuse himself from various cases because his wife, Virginia, is very active in conservative causes, um, whether as a lobbyist or or, or just as um, someone who is interested in those causes. And often some of the groups with which she works come before the court, and he has not recused himself in those instances. Um, I think there were also calls for Justice Ginsburg to recuse herself with regard to cases involving the Trump administration, because she was on record um, before the election of 2016 being quite critical of Donald Trump. And she, of course, did not Recuse herself either. So I think the real question is when are the optics so obviously poor that the court understands that the legitimacy of any decision it would make would be imperiled if a justice were to take part in the decision making? And, you know, if that's the barometer, I think in this particular circumstance, um, the calls for recusal, and there's already been a call for Judge Justice Barrett's recusal in the Pennsylvania case. I think those are pretty clearly strong calls, given what it would look like for someone to weigh in on an election-related dispute in which the person who nominated her is one of the litigants and, more importantly, has said things that suggest that one of the reasons he wanted that person nominated and appointed post-haste was so that she could weigh in. Um, arguably, in his favor in one of these election related disputes, so this is really an optics thing, and you know I, I think there will probably be a lot of discussion within the court itself about what is the appropriate course in this particular case
1: so just to just to be clear there 's no actual uh, consequences for not recusing yourself if you should like if john roberts really really thought amy coney barrett should recuse herself could he like go into her office turn a chair around (laughs) like the cool teacher and say like now listen kid, you're new around here like would there be like intra-court dynamics uh where maybe justices were trying to make a case for amy coney barrett to recuse herself or not recuse herself I'm
3: just getting very strong sister act vibes with <laughs> Justice Kagan going in like, "Girl, you in danger." <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's that's the best answer I can come up with. I think um, it is very likely that Chief Justice Roberts, who I think of all of the justices, um, is very very concerned about the court's legitimacy as an institution. um, He does not want the court to be viewed as partisan. I think he understands that everything that has happened over the last month is really bad for the court. I mean, if you just think about the conversations we are having and the conversations we had a month ago, the tenor of those conversations are very different. I I know lots of people who I think of as institutionalists. Um, They're progressive, they're liberals, but they're institutionalists, and a month ago, the idea of structural reform of the courts would have been anathema to those people. And now they are talking about it um, in, in terms that I think were unthinkable just a month ago. So in just a month, I think we've really seen the valence of the conversation and discourse change a lot. And I think he knows that. He cannot be unaware of the shift and what it means for the court um, You know, the court is unusual among the coordinate branches in that, unlike Congress, it does not wield the power of the purse. It can't withhold funding. Unlike the executive branch, it doesn't have the power of the sword. It cannot raise armies in its defense. All it has to make the public abide by its decisions is some sense that those decisions are legitimate. And, you know, we saw this in Bush v. Gore. Half the country did not agree with that decision, but everyone went along with it because they viewed the court as legitimate. For this decision, whatever this decision is, if there is a decision that goes to the court to be viewed as legitimate by the entire country, I think the members of the court understand that they have to be viewed as being outside of the fray and given the circumstances, that might not be possible if everyone on the court participated in the decision making.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to end on one quick light, light topic, I guess. Um, how are you staying sane between <laughs> now and the other side of this election?
3: Well, you know, there's so much Zoom school. Zoom school is a bomb for the soul. Like I, <laughs> I have a seventh grader and a fourth grader doing remote school. I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's a really tough question. Like I am staying sane. I, I mean, I guess I go for walks and stuff, but I I think this is really a troubling moment. Um, I know so many women who are really struggling right now to balance their family commitments um, with their work commitments, and it's not always cashing out, Um You know, I know some people who have decided to take a break from the workforce and, you know, that was not a decision made lightly. Um, I think there are a lot of people who really feel there are no good choices in this moment. Um, And I don't know, I I stay sane just because there isn't an option. I mean, I have this family I have to take care of. I have this job I have to do. And I'm hoping for a better future. Um, You know, one in which, I can leave my house without a mask on that, you know, I don't have to worry about not seeing my elderly mother because, you know, I might infect her. And that's really just what I'm hoping for. I have my eyes on the long prospect of maybe like we come out of this and we come out of it better than we went into it. But I think this is a really difficult moment. And, you know, part of maintaining your sanity is just acknowledging that this isn't normal and this isn't, this isn't what we signed up for in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, yes, and how. Um, Professor Murray, hopefully you can come back again on the other side of this troubling time (laughs) and talk to us because this is a great conversation. You always have so many interesting things to say. So thank you for joining us, and uh, let's let's have you back again Thank you so much.
3: Thanks for having me, ladies.
1: Okay, before we take a break, we asked you listeners to submit your pet issues to us, issues that you care about a lot, that you think more people should care about, and you sent us some pet issues. So let's get to a couple listener pet issues now. Let's hear from Emily. Hi, Hysteria team. My name
4: is Emily, and I live in New York City. My pet issue is child marriage in the United States. I work for an organization called Unchained at Last, which focuses on ending forced and child marriage in the U.S. Most people don't know this, but 46 U.S. states still allow for child marriage under the age of 18, and almost 248,000 children were married in the United States between 2000 and 2010. So we're going state by state and trying to eliminate the dangerous loopholes that allow for children under 18 to marry. And, you know, this is crucial legislation to protect children and specifically girls from lifelong repercussions and consequences of this terrible human rights abuse. And it's something that the United States needs to change and needs to change now.
1: For more information on Emily's pet issue, you can visit www.unchainedatlast.org and we will put a link to it in the show notes. All right, we have a pet issue
2: from listener Shannon. Hi, Hysteria. This is Shannon in Southwest Michigan. I just want to say my pet issue is the fact that this pandemic is going to have long-term lasting consequences on the gender pay gap. So many women I've known, including myself, have changed careers or quit jobs um, so they can take care of children. We know that responsibility um, falls mostly to women. Um, I... Quit my job after being furloughed for eight weeks because the thought of coming back and having to care for my then eight-month-old and have a full-time job at the same time made me break down into tears. So I did what was right for my family, and I'm still happy with my decision to become a stay-at-home mom. But how many other women are having to make this exact same decision? And then how many women are going to get passed over for promotions because they didn't go above and beyond during the pandemic? because they had to care for children anyway
1: that's my pet issue thanks for listening yeah the gender pay gap has been on my mind a lot as well i think it's been on a lot of people's mind and we could probably do a whole show about that and we probably will on the other side of the election okay let's take a break Okay, we are back. Alyssa is still with me. And uh, joining us is one of our lovely panelists, who listeners of the show know. You can see her in The Unicorn on Thursdays on CBS, or you can catch the first season of The Unicorn on Netflix. It
5: is Michaela Watkins. Hello, everybody. A week to go before the election. How you doing? You know, um, I'm back at work, so I have like a built-in distraction into my life. And then I work all day, and I'm trying—I watch The Social Dilemma, so I'm trying to not be on my phone all the time Mm. um, for a variety of reasons. But um, while I'm at work, that is. Because then I just go in, you know, when it's time to shoot, I go in and I'm really angry. So—and we're (laughs) doing a comedy. Uh, So I put it down, and then I come home to a tsunami of terrible, terrible news. So so I'm, like, good for— Thirteen to fourteen hours of the day, and then I'm mm-hmm. filled with existential dread, and then I go to sleep.
1: Well, it's good you're able to sleep. That's that's <laughs> an accomplishment in these.
5: But today I feel hopeful. That's good. I feel hopeful waking up to news that 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 Trump, you know, left thousands of followers out in the cold. Yeah, that was crazy. Um,
2: it was Party a good metaphor.
5: <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> that is a terrible host. But it was you know just how I imagine. How I, I went to an agency meeting one time. And they said everything I wanted to hear, and then I was, like, stuck in this big glass building, and I couldn't figure out the exit, and I stood alone in the hallway, and I went, hello, and <laughs> nobody came out, and I was like, this feels like a <laughs> metaphor if I were to sign with these people, and I didn't.
1: <laughs> oh, it's good. If, they, if you get trapped in a hallway, that's a, that's a sign that maybe you should try to remove yourself from that situation. Yeah, they're they were all suck. just
5: like, here's everything you want to hear, and then they went back in their offices and ignored me, and I was like, oh, Goodbye. Yeah. Well, I think that was a wise, it was
1: probably a wise decision. You know, the Trump story, the story of Trump, uh, what were they rally attendees? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nebraska. Yeah. Getting stranded just in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska. Kind of, uh, it it dovetails well. Yeah. Like octogenarians Um, who had to walk four miles to their car. Oh man. Not, not great, but, uh, dovetails well with what I'm about to say. Um, So right now in the world, it seems like the biggest assholes are the ones in power. And the only principle they have is to continue being assholes at all times. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a world of, you know, assholery, there's something really cathartic about watching people uh, get a piece of somebody's mind. Like I'm talking about what the kids would call a (laughs) clapback Or what a person in a movie in the 1930s might call the old what for. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're talking my language. The old what for with that arch mid-Atlantic accent that never existed. Okay, today we have a special guest who knows a thing or two about shutting down a rude man because she just did it.
4: Even though it's a school, it's a voting issue as opposed to just a school issue. Different? We we also have the right to protect ourselves, Charlie. Go ahead, Mari. Go ahead, Mari. Yeah, um, I was speaking. But anyway, I, you know, this is just a common sense issue. I can't understand for the life of me why we're having an argument about how we need to have guns
1: at polling locations. She currently represents District 40 in the Michigan House of Representatives. Please welcome to Hysteria, Mari Manugian
4: Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs>
1: we're super excited that you joined us this week. Can you, so if our listeners haven't seen the clip, can you kind of describe what happened? Yeah. So
4: um, I am frequently a guest on a political radio show that I sort of liken to like a Bill Maher, but like on local television. So if that gives you a flavor for how out of hand things can get sometimes, it's called Let It Rip, uh, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> and um, and so, uh, you know, the whole point of the show is that there's you know, two very diametrically opposing viewpoints. Um, and so, this this clip is of me um, talking about a an order that came from uh, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson regarding um, the banning of uh, open carry at polling locations throughout Michigan. Now, for context for our listeners, um, we actually had a court decision come down uh, yesterday, and it uh, struck down that ban on open carry. So. Um, you know, we're concerned about voter intimidation at the polls, um, especially with firearms. But anyway, this uh, Second Amendment attorney was uh, the other guest that was on the show. And I've seen him in our House committee before. I serve on the Military and Veterans uh, and Homeland Security Committee in the House here in Michigan. Um, and so I'm quite used to his antics. And uh, <laughs> it was an early Saturday morning and I kind of had had enough. Yeah. So that's how that clip happened. Um, and he was rude and talked on top of me and, um, I had had enough. So I, you know, summoned everything I had in me and just said, stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> for you. And he stopped. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it happened a couple of times, but, um, you know, it, it just, I kept saying, no, I'm talking just, I, I'm talking. Actually, it was, I was speaking. It's my turn to speak. And he asked the question of me. So it's my turn to speak. And, Um, He got very angry and pushed his face right up into the camera and uh, looked entirely ridiculous on morning television. I got many text messages from Republicans and Democrats who said that he was totally out of control. So um, it felt really good to have that support from both sides of the aisle.
1: (laughs) You're uniting the state of Michigan by uh, shutting down unreasonable men. Was, was um, Was that segment at all inspired by Kamala Harris in the VP debate? Oh my gosh! Yes. So
4: it was good to see.
1: You know, I'm always looking
4: to um, other strong women um, to emulate what they're doing. Sort of see. You know, learn from best practices. We we hear about that all the time as elected officials. Um, And so seeing how she was so effective at doing that gave me a lot of strength and courage to do that. But you know, like I see it all the time when I work in the House. Right. I work with a lot of really strong women, um, particularly on the Democratic side here in the Michigan Legislature. And but absolutely Kamala Harris's performance against uh, Vice President Pence in that debate was um, something that I took to heart when I was on TV that day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this question goes to everybody. Um, What have been your favorite recent examples of a viral shutdown? Alyssa, what's yours? (laughs) Mine's very, oh my God, I died. I rewatched it
0: so many times. When Katie Porter was at her committee hearing with the CEO of the pharmaceutical company and she like ripped out that whiteboard and was like, how much do you make? And he was like, I don't know. And she's like, I'll tell you.
2: Do you know what this number is? I. Does it ring any bells?
3: I, I think you're referring to my compensation in some way.
2: In some way, this was your compensation in 2017 for being CEO of Celgene. And that's a lot of money. It's 200 times the average American's income and 360 times what the average senior gets on Social Security.
0: And then she went through systematically... (laughs) explaining to him how his bonus, his multi-million-dollar bonus was directly related to raising the prices on drugs necessary for people to live. And his face got red and she grew larger and larger. And it was just like, she's like, that's it. I'm done. We're good. I got, I'm done. We're good. And he was just like, but, and she was like, no, nope, no nope. prices up bonus up. We're good. It was great.
1: I loved it so much. Michaela, do you have a favorite like viral clap back shutdown moment?
5: You know, I don't know how viral it went because you know I took the time to listen to the whole whammy jammy. But the uh when AOC, you know, really took the time to uh deconstruct why being called a bitch was mm. offensive and used her time on the floor to to do that. And it really explained to so many people and really kind of checked every box and on every level of why he's an asshole and why it's systemic and why it's a problem and what it does for the future generations of women and why he's a scourge. And <laughs> I just thought that was like the most beautiful constructed takedown uh, in a while and, and done with such um, grace and panache. In front of reporters, Representative Yoho called me, and I quote, "A fucking bitch."
0: These are the words that Representative Yoho levied against a congresswoman. And that's when we start to see that this issue is not about one incident. It is cultural. It is a culture of lack of impunity, of accepting of violence and violent language against women. And an entire structure of power that supports that. So, his name mm-hmm. was Yoho. Oh yeah, Ted
1: Yoho. Right. You know what he yeah, was before was? he served in Congress? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. You know what he was before he served in Congress? He was a large animal veterinarian. Oh, I was gonna say joke.
5: he sounds like an after school snack. <laughs> <laughs> he
1: does. After school snack would probably be a lot more like pleasant than the actual guy (laughs) who is, who sucks. Um, You know, my favorite recent uh, viral moment of somebody kind of standing up to the man um, is not an elected official. She is an activist who attended a Kansas city board of police commissioners meeting this week. I don't know if you guys saw her name is KJ Brooks. Mm -hmm. And um, she literally goes down the entire (laughs) board and insults every single one of them. Um, I'm not nice and I don't seek to be respectable.
0: I'm not asking y'all for anything, because y'all can't and won't be both my savior and my oppressor. Um, I don't want reform. I want to turn this building into luxury, low cost housing. These will make some really nice apartments to me. Firstly, stop using black children as photo opportunities, because they're cute now, but in 10 years, they're black male suspect in red shirt and khaki shorts. Eating cookies and drinking milk with children does not absolve you of your complicity in their oppression and denigration, Rick Smith.
1: It was it was a it was a thing of beauty. So after I saw the clip, I got in touch with her on Instagram because sometimes social media is good. And um, she said that if people want to support her activism, they can just check out her Instagram. She's going to be posting some like organizations today. Her Instagram is K J G. Dot B-R-K-S. So she, she was just, it was like jaw dropping. It was leaves. theater. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Mari, do you have a favorite, um, I guess, clap back moment? Yes. So I don't, mine
4: are not viral like nationally, but they have been used in ads, um, across, uh, Metro Detroit, uh, for one of our candidates. Um, so, uh, my best friend in the House, Representative Kyra Harris-Bolden, she represents. She's a you know 32 year old attorney, uh, African American woman who represents the House district right next to me, and she was also on the same local TV show uh, with uh, that I was on, uh, but she was on with a Republican colleague of mine named Ryan Berman. And Ryan represents a House district that's very 50/50, but he is far more Republican uh, and far more right-leaning than his district actually is. Um, and so he was very shouty and very aggressive. And Representative Bolden made sure to handle it and and uh, put him in his place regarding mask wearing and the fact that he doesn't really wear one. Um, and endangers his constituents when he's door knocking and all of that stuff. Um, And as a result, uh, the clapback that Representative Bolden uh, was able to uh, get done is now an ad that is running against Ryan (laughs) Berman in his own district. And I think it's hilarious because I've seen it a zillion times and it's amazing.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Michigan politics sound wild.
4: (laughs) Oh, it's like definitely the wild, wild west out here. <laughs> <laughs> Has it always been that
5: way? Or is this like a 20, 2016 situation? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is
4: um, this whole new wave of folks that had gotten, um, that were elected in 2018, right? So we flipped a bunch of state house seats. we Four seats away from taking majority here, so the pressure is on for the Republicans to hold their majority, and as a result, um, you know their antics just keep getting crazier and crazier. And uh, we have Governor Gretchen Whitmer, so she's sort of our backstop. And so as you know, we've gotten closer and closer to election day. um, The things that some of these folks are doing on the other side of the aisle just keep getting more bizarre. Um, obviously, seeing the Senate majority leader say ridiculous things about our governor, even after there've been death threats uh, made against her. And there was the wild FBI thing that happened where they foiled that plot to assassinate her. Um, I mean, it's, it's been a really bizarre time. Um, and there's mm-hmm. sort of just been this like GOP meltdown happening on the other side of the aisle. Um, mm-hmm. which is a little unfortunate. Like we're, we still have lame duck session to get through. Um, and you know, we still have a lot of work to get done and it would just be nice if the level of craziness could just come down so we could get work done. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think that, um, standing up to somebody, uh, who is, who is acting completely out of line, do you think it, do you think it can backfire? Like I, I mean somebody like, for example, Gretchen Whitmer is somebody who has over and over again stood up to people and and been totally unafraid. AOC, completely fearless. Um, Katie Porter, totally fearless. Does it seem like sometimes being fearless and not really giving a fuck makes people, just makes people angrier?
4: I think it can make people angrier. I also know that, um, you know... I think that for some people um, they, they want their female politicians to play it safe um, and they want them to sort of be, you know, docile and nice. um, But that doesn't always get the job done at the end of the day. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think that, you know, yeah, I think that women can be judged unfairly for that. Um, People often describe their male politicians as they want them to be fighters and, um, that's usually a word that, that we use oftentimes when we're talking about, um, you know, being a fighter for our district or a fighter for our constituents or a fighter for our state. Um, but, you know, there are segments of our population that don't see that as a word that we should be using to describe women, although I'm not one of them. So, um, you know, I do think that it can, it can backfire, but I will say this, I mean, Gretchen Wimmer has had the strongest fundraising of an off-year uh, Democratic governor in our state that I've seen. She's raised $3 million this year. Mm-hmm. Every time the president of the United States attacks her, she raises more money because people support her because they know that what she's doing is the right thing, and they like to see her stand up to people who are being unfair and cruel, frankly.
1: Mm-hmm. Michaela, you have worked in showbiz, mm-hmm. the biz, mm-hmm. uh, for, you know... A while, and it's a it's a place with a lot of politics, and you know, you have. To, it seems like a lot of like egos and people having to like tiptoe around. Have you ever seen uh, a person who is a, a real asshole in the entertainment biz get it kind of handed to them by somebody?
5: Um, have I seen it with my own two eyes? You mean, or has it been in the headlines? Uh, it can be something that you've seen or heard about, or. Um, but. yeah, I mean, you know, with like people like, like comedians and things like that, people like that who've crossed the line and then had other people come out and, 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 and speak their mind. I mean, talk about it backfiring. I, I, I've i seen a lot of people try to stand up to, you know, speak truth to power and it has backfired, you know, um, I have a friend Arden Mirren, who was uh introduced on stage uh by uh someone describing her tits and um t- completely denigrating her before she even hit the stage and by the time she got onto the stage and was you know about to do her set, she was so demoralized and so and and just so um objectified so grossly that everybody was staring at her boobs when she got on stage and then was supposed to do her set and kind of lost it and wrote a big op-ed about it. Um, I spent so much time, you know, and and then all, all the, like, male comedians, you know, came out against her. And it was really, like, that's what I mean when you see it backfire, you, even with Harvey Weinstein, those, like, brave comedians who came out. and, but But I have been on set where I have, you know, in the past witnessed something that I felt was wrong. And stayed up nights wondering why I didn't use my voice to speak out about it. And I just, it all comes down to how much power you have at the time. Mm -hmm. I feel like that paradigm is starting to shift. I think there is like a shift in consciousness overall. Nobody wants to be the person who gets in trouble. I think people are aware now so much more of what we say and what we do and who we say it to and how we say it. And mm-hmm. um, so I, I feel like a very strong shift in that direction, and I think it is because of brave people who have come out before us. But but I think that's why it's so damn satisfying to hear you, Mari, and like to hear other people who ha- who who found it in themselves to find to find their voice. I do now. Like now, I don't hold back. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel I feel sheepish that I felt like I got permission by watching women, you know, other women do it, and quite honestly, younger women do it. Younger, women younger than me and braver than me. And so, you know, I I feel, I don't feel great about that. But I think the reason it's so satisfying is because I've spent so many sleepless nights writing and perfecting the perfect monologue of what I should have said. It's like that scene, I think it's why, the only reason why Tootsie was such a, like, successful movie was because when Dustin Hoffman is like, it's not Toots, or Tootsie, or Honey, or Baby, or Darling, it's Dorothy, capital D-O-R-O-T-H-Y, Dorothy, you know. And it took like a man dressed as a woman, you know, for us all to go, yay! (laughs) <laughs> That's who gets to say it, you know. But I, I just feel like I've had so many of those capital D O R O T in my in my, you know, as I'm trying to go to sleep of what I would have liked to have said. And so when you see it happen, it's just like every fiber of your being just wants to high five, high five <laughs> the the Lordess. I don't know. Yeah,
4: I mean, I haven't always been that way. Like to be really clear, um, you know, I. I, uh, you know, my dad talks often about like, I can't believe you're doing this and not because I don't think that you're smart enough or that you don't have the skills to do this, but you were such an introverted child that I can't believe that this is like something that you're doing now. Um, and obviously he's like, it's just me and my sister. I don't have any other siblings and she's four years younger than me. And, uh, if you think I'm a spitfire, she's, she's exactly like when I talk about people that, uh, inspire me, she's definitely one of them. And so my dad is like, I just can't believe that it's not Elise that's doing this. It's you because <laughs> we didn't expect this to be you when you were a kid you used to hide behind me and mom when we'd go to like Christmas parties. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's funny, like seeing, you know, my friends from high school and, and people I grew up with and, um, you know, family, friends are like, wow, like this is just sort of the transformation. And I think, frankly, it's funny Um, even as a kid, my parents were like, you know, once you started talking, you kind of never stopped, but you know, Mm -hmm. all of it was held in for so long and you had so much you had to say that you just did like sort of like the dam broke. And I think that's how I felt too. um, you know, kind of growing up and, uh, you know, very much like Michaela was saying, sort of, you know, didn't really, um, have the courage in myself yet and didn't have the self-confidence, but, um. At some points, just like I was just so sick and tired of seeing it happen so often, and nobody doing anything about it, and so I just sort of was like, "All right, screw it, I'll just do it myself."
1: <laughs> <laughs> Alyssa, have you ever had? Uh, you've you've rubbed elbows with some pretty powerful people. Um, have you ever had to stand up to somebody?
0: <sighs> have I ever had to
1: stand up to somebody? And if it was on video, would it have gone viral? <laughs> okay. So. Maybe not. I mean, you guys, I'm
0: the, I'm a pussy. Like, I mean, let's be honest. I'm a no, terrible. No, I'm not. No, I'm, I'm very confrontation averse, except on Twitter as it relates to Jared and Ivanka. But <laughs> when I was a teeny tiny baby in politics in 2003 or 2004, um, John Kerry was like a very wonderful person who would invite me to participate in things like debate prep. And so I went to debate prep uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I will never forget it. And uh, he had asked me to come into one of the meetings and someone who shall remain nameless, who's a big deal, uh, turned to me and asked me to sharpen his pencils. And I was so Aghast, like I just I couldn't believe it. I was like, first of all, sharpen pencils, and I mean, I love pencils, so I get it. But so I just went and did it, you know. I was like, well, fuck. I went and sharpened the pencils, brought it back. Fast forward six, seven years, something like that. This person gets promoted or invited into the Obama administration, and he and I are in a meeting uh, for which I completely outrank him, and I'm like what are you going to do, Alyssa? What are you going to do? Are you going to pretend like it didn't happen or are you going to say something? So I came in and he's like, oh, hey, how are you? And, and understand anything he wanted, whether it be a parking space or something more important, I controlled. And I was like, oh, it's good to see you. you can going to ask me to sharpen some pencils? And he was so confused. And like, what are you talking about? And it's like, I said to him, I go, you'd said that to me in 2004. And I remembered it every single day. And I can't, I never said anything at the time because I was so stunned. So you need to know your words matter. And he has like a child now and he's like i can't believe i said that. i'm so sorry and then the problem was he just tried to apologize to me for every day for two years <laughs> i was like don't Back worry because i'm like don't worry i'm not gonna tell barack obama the story which was what i feared was his real motivation <laughs> don't tell obama i was a big dick
1: <laughs> that's my that's my real oh, stand man. up to him story you know, it's funny, like just listening to the three of you talk about like the standing up to people, not standing up to people um, and thinking about the times that I've had to stand up to people. I, I feel like it's, I think about, I, I worked in a, in a place that that had an editor who was kind of emotional. He, he was kind of an emotional person, but in a good way, I feel like having a person who was a boss, who was like emotionally invested in like the work that we were doing. And he would have an emotional response sometimes to stuff if he didn't like it. It kind of made me feel like if I was feeling frustrated or sad that I could express it because that was like the way that things were communicated there. I think like civility culture, politeness culture is kind of the enemy of uh, progress because it keeps people who are um, harmed by the system from feeling like they can stand up. Like, I feel like standing up part of the reason it's so thrilling. Part of the reason your heart beats so fast. Part of the reason that you spend the rest of the day thinking about it is because you're challenging something Mm -hmm. like you're challenging somebody that is more powerful than you. You're challenging you're, you are confronting like the politeness that you're expected to display and you're rejecting it in favor of like trying to pursue something better. Um, I wanted to close with this question though, like viral clapbacks are super fun to watch and share and remember and, and trade like trading cards. Um, But do you think that they can give people a false sense of positive change? I'm not talking about the actual act of speaking up. I'm talking about like the uh, how common it is to every once in a while, see like these, you know, viral moments. Is there a danger in getting too excited um, about stuff like this without following through, and then what's the difference between, um, actually taking a stand and grandstanding?
5: You know what I've been sort of noticing lately is, let's take Kellyanne Conway for example, right? I, I, I this came to me on a hike, where <laughs> I just thought, <laughs> you know, in theory, right? She stands up to all these guys, you know. She'll, she'll like get in, in, in. Uh, uh, Anderson Cooper's face and whomever else's face. And she'll, she'll just go off on them. And, and I'm like, why don't I, I know why I don't root for her because everything that comes out of her mouth is a lie and, um, and garbage. But taking that aside, like, why don't I feel like good for you, at least like good for you in the sense that you're not afraid of these, you know, powerful anchor men, right? And the mm-hmm. reason is, <laughs> is because this is the toxic version of speaking your mind, in the sense that she is. Have you noticed she is never going head to head with a woman? She is mm. never, ever, ever, ever seen. I don't mm. think, may, Alyssa. Am I wrong? Because no, I there's only one example that I can think of. Well, I was going to say it feels really calculated because what she does and what the women who that were all rah-rah-rah-ing do not do is they don't use it as, poor me, I'm a victim. It is, you can tell they're mustering every single molecule in their body to find their voice to say, you don't get to do this to me anymore. And what Kellyanne Conway does is she lies and she berates and she scrambles everybody's eggs and then in their, you know, in their head by just (laughs) saying gobbledygook. And then when they come at her and go, but this, then she's like, how dare you? How dare you hurt me? Mm -hmm. And then she's a wounded woman, right? And then it makes them look like, I'm not going to get anywhere fighting with a woman. That's just not a good look right now. So they back off. And then she continues to just spew lies. And it's so calculated. But I'm like, she's never, but if she would never do it with another woman because she can't have that kind of manipulation. And that's what I'm just saying is like, that's the toxic version of speaking your mind.
0: And Michaela, you should check out, she did an interview with Jennifer Palmieri. Uh, on uh-huh. the Showtime Circus, and Paul Mary, who I've called Paul Mary since I met her a million years ago, she does this interview with her, and every time Paul Mary goes after her, she mm-hmm. goes, Jennifer, Jennifer, mm. you know what it's like to be against the Met. I mean, like, she she did this, like, sisterhood thing, and Paul Mary it was is. like, oh, hey, yo, no, we're not the same, girl. Yeah. Like, you can stop. <laughs> but it was, very, it was very interesting, because she was different.
5: She did take a different tactic. She took a different tactic yeah. and, 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 and it's all manipulation. And I think people can smell authenticity a mile away, especially um, people coming up now, like we've seen it all. So mm-hmm. I, I I don't know. I don't know if that answers the question, Erin. I apologize. No, I, I think that
1: it definitely does. Mari, it looks like you had a thought.
4: Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about this and like, I've replayed this clip that I, I did like over and over in my head a bazillion times and I just did it again. And, you know, I think for me, like. I think I took it, like, right up to the line. Um, Frankly, like, you guys have been covering this um, on Hysteria and on Cripkin, but, like, just more broadly, the kinds of attacks against, um, you know, members of our legislature that have been happening in Michigan where, you know, folks are showing up with guns and they're hanging out in our gallery, intimidating us as we're, you know, trying to do our jobs, that sort of thing. And just, like, I think we're just sick of being gaslit. And Mm -hmm. I think just being, you know, I think you can take it right up to the line, like, honestly, I was just tired of being gaslit. Like, I'm tired of being told that, you know, well, I just need to like woman up and not be so afraid to go do my job when there's like strange men who, oh, just happen to be plotting against, you know, the life of the governor, uh, hanging out in the gallery of our legislature. Like, I just keep being told, you know, my myself and my colleagues keep being told that like, this is no big deal. Um, and in fact, you know, you did have the opportunity to have security with you. And you did like at some point, like, some, like I just couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether or not that was like, you know, uh, something that would backfire or whatever, at some point, like, I was just tired of not saying, like, not connecting the dots for people. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, maybe it could backfire. We, like I said, we're four seats away from winning the chamber. And we're running, you know, candidates in these Republican districts that need to be flipped. And maybe, maybe that isn't what voters want to hear. I, I mean, at some, you know, I, you you can't always know exactly uh, what the secret sauce is that's going to get you uh, a win. But you know, in my heart of hearts, in Michigan, we just want people to be honest with one another. And so for me, um, whether this backfires, I guess we'll find out on Tuesday. But uh, mm-hmm. for me, it was like, I'm just sick of being gaslit. I'm sick of watching my colleagues being gaslit. And uh, it was just time for me to stand up and, and do the right thing. And you know, yeah, I'm, I'm really tiny. I'm like five feet tall and uh, I'm a woman. And so, you know, I'm not a particularly intimidating person on my surface, but, you know, I have colleagues who are African-American. I have colleagues who are Arab American and like these kinds of things that are happening to us in the legislature, like it was incumbent on me in that moment to take it as far as I needed to go to make it clear to the people that we
1: were sick and tired of being gaslit. Mm-hmm. And Alyssa, I think you and I have said this a bunch of times, they have to learn. God, they have to yeah. learn. Like yeah. they ha- there has to be some sort of like, I think, you know, if you can just go through life interrupting people and talking over people and talking down to people and never suffer any consequences, you're just going to keep doing it.
5: We have an episode this season on a CBS comedy about white fragility. Like that is because people are, they're learning. Like people have to learn, and now they and now they're starting to learn. I there's not a world in which a, an episode like this would have been written for, you know, yeah, a happy family like, comedy. So when is that airing? Um, let's see, it's my third episode, and uh, I think we start airing in about three weeks, so six weeks from now. Yeah,
1: nice, five or six. Weeks. I'm excited for that one. Okay, yeah. we have to uh, take a break, but before we do that, um, if the three of you could tell off one person on camera. Who would it be? Who's who's somebody that needs a telling off that you would like to to issue? Alyssa?
0: Ivanka? Just just give me 3 minutes. She has no business she has no business having the job she has. She has no business then getting the job and being like, you can't criticize me. And thinking that she's ever, ever going to be welcomed back into the community that she had in New York. Because she is dead to us.
1: <laughs> she can't sit with us. Can't sit, cannot can't with, sit us. with us. Regina George. Uh, uh, Mari? Yeah, well,
4: along that same uh, line of thinking, Tiffany Trump is actually coming to my hometown in a couple of days. Um, and so I, I think I would have to add her to my list of people. Um, because everybody was doing the poor Tiffany thing because, uh, you know, everyone sort of felt like she was sort of unwelcome with the Trumps. But she's out here doing a breakfast with Tiffany's in Birmingham in my hometown. Which
0: Audrey Hepburn is rolling in her grave at this whole breakfast with Tiffany's thing.
1: (laughs) Audrey Hepburn (laughs) is spinning so fast in her grave that she's creating a magnetic field. We can feel it from here. Oh my! Well, God.
4: it's fine because she'll probably have to drive by my dad's eight-foot Biden sign on her way, <laughs> so that'll be fine.
1: <laughs> uh, Michaela, who would you tell off if you could tell off a, a famous person?
5: I mean, I don't know what good it would do, but I always wanted to go have you know drinks, or um, pff, it'd be a lot of drinks with Lindsey Graham. <laughs> <laughs> um, Because I get it. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. Because I just want to get him sauced enough to start truth spewing to me. And I feel like that guy, like, I feel like I would know how to chit-chat with him because because I don't know why. I don't know what it is. (laughs) But he does have this sort of, um, look, I'm going to be straight with you kind of thing that he does, you know? and i feel like i would i would just like let him think he had me for a while you know like that he was being straight and then just keep going shot for shot with him and then just to stay on him until he couldn't let up and then record it <laughs> and play it for everybody and just find out what what he's doing what he's thinking cuz i i think that man does not honestly give a shit about anything i think he really genuinely died about 10 years ago and just stopped <laughs> – like all this is just gravy in a game for him. Oh, man.
1: Like now my brain is going, and I think about all the like smug, like Beltway dipshits, like Newt Gingrich. I would love to yell at him. I would love to yell at Newt Gingrich when he's in a situation where he cannot yell back. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would just be really gratifying – I would love to tell off Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. I think that would be Agreed. that would be good. That would oh feel good God, for me. Yes. I I just I want to yell at him. There's so many people that I just want to like Mark Meadows. Mark Meadows needs a, a a good yelling at. Jim Jordan. I would uh, love to yell J-Y- at Jim Jordan.
0: My guy.
1: Jim old gymnasium Jordan. But you know, I I think that you know, thanks to people like Mari and Kamala Harris and people who are standing up and showing how it's done. I feel like it's going to become more commonplace. Like the fuckery cannot go unchecked any longer. Um, I hope. All right. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but everybody's Stick around. When we come back, we're going to do I Feel Petty, and uh, I think we've all got pretty good ones this week, right? I have a good one. Absolutely. Okay, great. And we're back. Before we get to I Feel Petty, I have a little bit of housekeeping. Now, instead of announcements and stuff, I think that we should use this space to highlight some women who are running for elected office who are worth highlighting. And they're in competitive races. If you have a couple bucks to to throw at them down the stretch, you should consider doing it. So uh, we're going to highlight a few of them. Let's do it. First one I want to highlight is named Desiree Timms. She is running to represent Ohio's 10th Congressional District. Um, A fun fact about her, she was inspired by her grandfather, who was forced to leave school at age six to support his family as a sharecropper in the Deep South. Um, And Desiree became the first in her family to earn a four-year college degree. She's been endorsed by Obama. Kamala, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, Emily's List, and the Sierra Club. Um, she has more money than her opponent, Michael Turner, but the race is leaning Republican. Uh, if you want to support her, you can go to timsforcongress.com. That's Desiree Tims She sounds awesome. It'd be cool if we could flip that seat.
0: Another... Woman, friend of hysteria, Abby Finkenauer, who I had the oh. privilege of meeting uh, in Iowa two years ago when I spoke there. She is running to represent Iowa's first congressional district. She's up for reelection. Fun fact she is the youngest woman ever to flip a congressional seat. Hello, Abby. Uh, wow. She has been endorsed by the Human Rights Campaign, Sierra Club, Emily's List, Every Town for Gun Safety, and Barack Obama. The first district is one of 31 U.S. House seats that Trump won in 2016 and a Democratic candidate won in 2018 midterms. It tilts Democratic, but is not a done deal. To check out Abby and throw a little support her way, go to www.abbyfinkenauer.com. That's A B B Y F I N K E N A U E R.com. Ooh,
1: good spelling. Thank you. Third candidate we want to highlight is Marquita Bradshaw. She is running a uh, long shot race, but her story is amazing. She's running for the Senate in Tennessee. She's a Tennessee native. Somebody from Memphis is called a Memphian? I had no idea. That was news to me. I didn't I didn't know she's a Memphian. She's from Memphis and she has extensive experience in the environmental justice movement and she's an advocate for human rights. Marquita grew up in South Memphis and is an alumna of the University of Memphis. She's a single mom who raised her son on a working class salary. She's been endorsed by Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden. The state of the race is solid Republican, but you know, people like Marquita Bradshaw are the ones putting cracks in the glass ceiling. Mm -hmm. And I bet eventually, eventually there's going to be somebody who is inspired by her taking that seat in Tennessee. And
0: you know why it's important? Because in 2006, when I worked for Barack Obama... We never expected Nancy Boyda in Kansas two to win that year, and she did. So you honestly never know. Turnout is incredible. She could she could have a
1: real chance here. Mm-hmm. And you can support her uh, by visiting her website, That's marquitabradshaw.com. That's M A R Q U I T A B R A D S H A W dot com. Okay. We are in the home stretch of the election, Alyssa. Mm. Aside from casting our own votes, what's most important for all of us to be doing right now is making sure the people in our lives and the people in key areas that will make a difference in the results of this election get out there and vote. So, I'm talking to you Wisconsin people, Michigan people, Arizona people, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Arizona, Michigan, Florida. (laughs) Yeah, you got to get... If you know people in those states, you have to hound them. You must... Hound them like a text message asking you for money from a uh, Democratic candidate you've already given money to. Um, If you go to the Volunteer Hub at votesaveamerica.com slash volunteer, uh, anytime between now and Election Day, you can find opportunities to help get out the vote whenever you're available. That's votesaveamerica.com slash volunteer to find all your options. And, you know, in the meantime, hound everyone you know. Make sure they're voting. Make sure they're voting. Do it. Okay. House has been kept. Uh, Now let's do I Feel Petty. Um, (laughs) Alyssa, do you want to go first? What's your petty thing this week? Me? Oh, sure. I'd
0: love to. So on Wednesday, the New York Times posted, I swear to God, the picture of five refrigerators, the inside of five refrigerators. And they were like, which one belongs to a Trump voter and which one belongs to a Biden voter? And okay, I get the need for like light content. I just found it so offensive, like everything about it. It's like someone had organic raspberries and someone had Cool Whip. Well, as someone on Weight Watchers, Cool Whip's one point. And so I have that in my freezer. (laughs) What are you trying to say? So it was very clear where they were leading people to. And I just thought it was like so tacky and like beneath. And it was just so bad, so bad. A week from the election, that's the best you can do. I was very, I was really agitated
5: by it. It would have been more accurate if they were like, which one belongs to a QAnon supporter? So much, much better. Believer. Yeah.
4: I mean, like all of those things that were in there, are, like typical things that are in a Midwestern house, No, I mean, you should. So like, what does that say? If you look at the
0: photos, there is scene setting going on.
5: <laughs> because like you could have the most organic, homeopathic, anti-vaxxing, you know. 100%. Who is like full in on the Q. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, yeah. I was listening to a podcast about Instagram QAnon, like lifestyle brand QAnon supporter type people. I had no idea. Yeah, it's a whole thing on Instagram, and I bet they have weird-ass fridges. I take it back. (laughs) That's
5: who I'd like to tell off. I'd like to tell off that guy in the Philippines who calls himself Q. That's
1: who. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's all, oh he needs a a telling off. Okay, so here's, here's the thing I feel petty about this week. So, um... My house in, you know, since moving to the West Coast, you know, you can have more space than you have in New York. You know, I was living in a tiny little apartment in New York before I moved here. But still, you know, space is limited. And when I'm shopping for furniture, I want to be able to shop by dimensions, like exact dimensions. When I'm shopping for, like, storage baskets, I want to be able to sort it by, like, I want to say, like, okay, I have a space that needs a storage basket that's, like, 12 inches by 15 inches, what will fit in there. But you can't do that. You have to click every individual thing open and then look at the, you have to scroll down and then look at the dimensions. I want to be able to search by size. I want to be able to <laughs> specify I need a thing that will fit in a space this big. What do you got for me? It's. It really bothers me and I don't understand why they don't do that. Right. You guys don't seem to be as moved by this. No, I, no. I are is. you kidding? I feel it. I feel it.
4: My heart. This happens every time I look for a poster frame. Like I can't find the right dimensions. It doesn't matter whether I type in like I want 11 by 17 frame. They send me like. Eight by ten. I did not type that into the search bar. Like, what are you doing? But I measuring will say, is
5: hard. I will say I always feel so chuffed when you find that one random measurement and you put it in and then there's someone on Etsy in Morocco who's selling a pillow cover that they got exact you. size where you're I, like get the same. Eight. I am just like goosed forever. I just every time I look at it, I'm like <laughs> That. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes though, like you can
1: ig- ignore sizes on Etsy at your peril because, like, if you don't pay attention to that, you can get something that's totally the wrong size. I was—I wanted I, I wanted like a Soviet era poster because, like, Soviet era posters are like badass looking because of the graphic. They had very good graphic design in that in that terrible hellscape of a country. Um, but I wanted to get like a poster, and it came, and it was like a postcard size. <laughs> Thing of a cosmonaut in in space. Um,
5: okay, uh Michaela, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, okay, so I don't know if you've been watching The Vow on Netflix or like if yes. you've been following the Nexium thing. So um there's a very simple way to not join a cult. And I think I found it by accident because I was born with a gene. I was born with um ADHD. And what that means is because I am very, very, like, easily influenced. I, If I find something I like, I go full bore, 100% into it, and I will proselytize and tell everybody I know about something that I like. But here's why I've never joined a cult. <laughs> because I don't stay with anything longer than a month or two. And I'm just so happy about this because, as we know, Keith Rainier, who um, has, like, a sex slave division of his um, – of his like sort of landmark for me kind of cult where he's been, you know, enslaved these women and branded them. Just got 120 years yesterday. And I just am always thinking, you know, as I'm watching it, I'm like, how do these women, you know, join? And and these men too. And I get it because everything they were saying, I'm like, yeah, I would enjoy those things. But (laughs) I don't, when everybody's like, oh, do you take yoga from Tony? Tony's the best. I'll be like, Tony is the best. And I'm going to... Fully go to yoga with Tony for a month. And then, <laughs> and I'm going to tell everybody else to go. With, and then when Tony says my name, like, Michaela, can you down dog? I'll be like, Tony, Tony sees me. Tony knows me. But the reason I don't belong to the cult of Tony is because two weeks later, I'll try Sarah's class and be like, <laughs> Sarah really got into my neck, and I really Uh have neck (laughs) problems. And then I'll just go to, so, like, basically, there should just be a disclaimer. And if, for every cult, you know, documentary or series or anything, just make sure, like, don't follow anybody longer than a month. Switch (laughs) switch it up, and this will never be you. And if they just had this little asterisk footnote, then we wouldn't have this issue anymore, guys. We just wouldn't. (laughs) it's great advice that's great advice
1: don't do anything for longer than a for month. longer than great. a month so easy no cults here yeah no cults here no um, just
5: be a, a, a master of nothing and do <laughs> but do everything sure sure
1: that sounds, that's a solid advice um mar you want to bring us home Yes, and mine is
4: um very typical like politician-y of me, but I have a lot of thoughts and feelings on knocking doors because we've been doing a lot of that and they're very like mundane and ridiculous. So the first is for the love of God, please do not answer your door in a bathrobe. Like, just please don't, just like, please don't do it. Just Please don't answer your door naked. We, I don't need to talk to you that badly. Like, you, like, it's really okay. Um, and I'm literally saying this from personal experience. Like, it's really okay. You don't have to answer your door naked. Um, it's fine. Uh, also have a lot of thoughts about the, how you can like put a piece of lit in the door. So anybody who's ever knocked a door Um, sometimes it's really hard to like figure out where to leave the literature. Like, is it going to blow away? Especially in Michigan, we've got crazy weather. So I am uh, very much prefer, I prefer very much to have Door hangers on like a looped door handle because I think it's the easiest way to make sure that you can leave lit there. And that is like the lamest thing, except for this is all I've been doing lately. So (laughs) all I've been thinking about is I just hope to God that like the lit doesn't blow away and like nobody naked answers their door.
2: (laughs) Those are like the two things.
4: That's all I'm asking for these next couple of days is like you know yes, obviously I want you to support my candidate that I'm knocking doors for, but for the love of God, please don't answer your door. (laughs) And and if I
5: can just (laughs) yes, and that really fast. I've been doing a lot of phone calls because, you know, in Michigan, (laughs) you guys still see people face to face, but not here. And I I, I just every single phone calling, like phone banking thing, when people are like, well, where is the closest Dropbox and where is the thing? The way that they're always set up is I'm like, hold on. And I was like, oh, my God, they're asking. They want to know where to take their ballot, like, to go vote and to go or, like, to, to vote in person or go whatever. And I'm, like, trying to look up their thing. And I'm just like, stand by. It is—it takes a very long time to figure out very basic information, like, to try to, you know, put their address in and tell them the thing. And there just has to be—there just has to be easier ways of these things. <laughs>
1: It's like the first act of an infomercial that's going to sell some miraculous product that can tell you everything about where somebody lives, which I think uh, there are companies that already know all that. and It's scary. Okay. <laughs> um, that is all the time we have for the show. Thank you, Mari Manugian, for joining us. Michaela Watkins, thank you for coming by. Thanks to my ride or die, Alyssa Monaco. Thank you to Professor Melissa Murray. And thanks to you the listeners. There will be more Hysteria after the election Ah, next week.
5: <laughs>
1: hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastermonico is our co-producer and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Narmel Konian and Magic Groot. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week.
5: Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m., at all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New Miracle-Gro organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. Miracle-Gro is simply the best.